Okay, we should be live now. I'm going to look for confirmation as the YouTube screen comes up, but I am honored today to have Timothy Sanderfer with me, and he is the Vice President for Litigation at Goldwater Institute. Is that correct, sir? That's right, yep. I'm going to turn my sound off at YouTube one second. Just got it in my ear. Okay, so we are definitely live. Uh, thank you to those of you who are joining us over. I see some people filing into YouTube. Today we are going to talk about, and I thank you for agreeing to this on such short notice, a law review article, and you just posted yesterday about it out there on social media. It was recently published in the Arizona State Law Journal. Is that right? Yeah, it just came out, uh, what, two days ago, I think. Okay, great. And it is about something in Arizona law in the Arizona Constitution called the Private Affairs Clause. And can you briefly tell everybody what is that clause and why should everybody from Arizona or otherwise care about it? Well, it's the state version of the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that protects us against warrantless searches. And it was written in 1912, well, 1910 is when the Arizona Constitution was written and it was ratified in 1912. Arizona is unique in being the only state ever to be vetoed. Uh, when, when Arizona applied for admission in the union in 1910, the president disapproved of certain portions of its constitution and, and said no. So Arizona had to go back and redo it. So this person was written in 1910 and then was finally approved in 1912. And what it says is that a person's private affairs shall be prevent, protected against intrusion and homes shall be protected against invasion except by lawful authority. And the language of the provision was copied out of the Washington state constitution from 1889. And those are the only two states that have this provision in their constitutions. Right, right. And that was something that struck me is that this is unique. I hate to say it, but I am one of the people that you mentioned in your article, which is I've just been so focused on federal privacy constitutional provisions that I've only taken glancing looks at state provisions. And so I was unaware of this history. So now we me know too, what- Me it, too, until about a year or two ago. Okay, and you've been living in Arizona how long now? Yeah, three or four years. Okay, okay. But it came to your attention, was it because of the gene case that you mentioned in the article? Is that actually, why it came to your attention? No, it's actually a case called Hernandez, um, which we participated in. We filed a friend of the court brief in that case in the Arizona Supreme Court. And that was a case where guy was driving along in the middle of the night near um, uh, Cochise County, and he was being followed around by the cops who thought he was a little suspicious. But he followed all the traffic laws until they turned on their lights because they noticed that his insurance had expired, you know. So mm -hmm. they, they turned on their lights and he did stop. He pulled over, but he pulled over into a private driveway and the officers then came up to the car and they claimed to have just smelled marijuana. So they arrested him and searched his car. And the question was whether that violated the state constitution. It's a very interesting set of facts to, to talk about as an attorney. So we filed a, a friend of the court brief and that kind of expanded into what an interesting provision this private affairs clause really is. Yeah, so it is different from the federal constitutional provision that purports to protect privacy, but at least by its language protects us from searches and seizures of various right. bad kinds. You know, we could talk about reasonable and reasonable authorized versus not authorized, et cetera, as language. But the language is different. And why would Arizona 
adopt something that only one other state has versus do something that most of the country has done, which is, you know, variations on a theme of the Fourth Amendment, basically. Right. And and you not, not only does the language of Arizona and Washington differ from the federal constitution, it also differs from all of the other state constitutions that talk about this, because the other constitutions of states that talk about privacy, those those provisions were all added in the 1970s. Mm. And they were all and those all were done at a time when the real focus was on um, uh, intimacy rights, sexual privacy, things like that, which do not appear to have been involved at all in the in at the time that the Arizona and Washington constitutions yeah. were adopted. What they were concerned about was what was then a, a pretty recent set of cases from the US Supreme Court that involved um, either the legislatures or courts demanding a person's private financial information, business transaction information, uh, records and books of, of private business affairs. And the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court issued two decisions called Kilburn and Boyd, both of which said that those things were covered by the Fourth Amendment. But a lot of lawyers at the time didn't think that was right. And so it appears that first the Washington and then later the Arizona framers decided to, to cover all their bases. And so they drew up language that they thought would cover everything the Fourth Amendment covered, plus these other things that the Supreme Court had talked about in those two cases. So that's one reason that these, you know, these clauses in the two states are interesting is because they provide at least on their face or as intended, a lot broader protection for our interests than the federal constitution does and that any of the other states do. Um, but the thing that your article is about, which is fascinating, is that in the state of Washington, they seem to have followed through with the language of it and the logic, which says that if the language is different, then we're going to interpret it in a way that's different than the Fourth Amendment, and as we would assume, uh, provide you know construe it to provide broader protection. State of Washington has done that, but the state of Arizona hasn't, arguably up until maybe very recently. Because I have a question: if there's a case that has maybe changed, uh, you know, sort of the projection for the future on this provision on, on the Yeah, no, the, it's, it's a truly weird anomalous situation where Washington courts have taken this private affairs clause seriously. And they've said this differs from the fourth amendment. The language is completely different. Doesn't even use the word reasonable, which is a huge part of fourth amendment laws. What qualifies as a reasonable search that's irrelevant under errors under Washington state law. Um, a warrantless search is constitutional under the Fourth Amendment if it's still reasonable, but it's not constitutional under the Washington Constitution, no matter how reasonable it might be. So Washington courts have developed this really good case law, but Arizona courts have just never done it, and they've never given us an explanation why. They keep saying, well, we haven't followed Washington state precedent. Why not? They've never explained why not. And it's it not only is that bizarre, given that this is identical language in the state constitutions, but it's actually the language that was purposely the model for the Arizona Constitution. But also, there are other provisions of the Arizona Constitution that were borrowed from, from Washington law, particularly the eminent domain provisions of the mm -hmm. Arizona Constitution were copied from Washington law. And in eminent domain cases, Arizona courts do follow Washington law, as they should. So why in the world would they not follow it when it comes to searches? There's never been an explanation in Arizona law, and it's truly weird. Worse than that is that Arizona courts then just copy fourth, federal Fourth Amendment jurisprudence when applying the state provision, which makes no sense. You're talking about 
pieces that were developed based on different language in a federal, not a state constitution, that's designed to, to do different jobs and that postdates the Arizona constitution. It makes no yes. sense yes. for a court to apply jurisprudence from 1960 when you're interpreting a, a provision that was written in 1910. No, not at all. Not at all. And um, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, there was one part of the article where you were talking about a case in which Arizona followed the federal law, but explicitly there were other factors at play in that particular type of case where the Arizona court had no business just following lockstep with the federal law. But oh yeah, to me, the, re the real amazing kicker is the, is the very first case, and that's a case called Malman in, from 1926, where the Arizona Supreme Court says they, they adopted the automobile exception to the Fourth Amendment as a matter of state constitutional law. Now, right. this is truly bizarre because the Arizona, or I mean, the automobile exception to the uh, Fourth Amendment was adopted only a year before that that case was decided mm -hmm. in a U.S. Supreme Court case called Carroll. So, what what when you read the Malman case, the Arizona Supreme Court says, well, it's true the language of the two provisions is completely different, but they're about the same general thing. And so therefore we're gonna adopt this brand new automobile exception to the warrant requirement. Now, not only is that insane as a linguistic matter, but the Arizona constitution is the only constitution to be written after the invention of the automobile mm -hmm. and before the invention of the automobile exception to the warrant requirement. So they cannot have been on anybody's mind when this language was written and ratified that it somehow would not apply to automobiles but we've never been given any explanation for that anomaly. No, no. And then of course there are other reasons that you might want a federal automobile exception in terms reasonableness. of reasonableness. Interstate. The reason is because of reasonableness. They, the, the, the federal Supreme Court said automobile exception is okay because a search without a warrant of an automobile is reasonable. And the reason it's reasonable is because cars can drive away before you can get a warrant. Okay, fine. Whatever you think about that, it can't apply under the Arizona constitution, which does not use the word reasonable. Okay, so the the courts have just been not doing their job as far as we right. can tell in Arizona. And you give a few theories as to why. So there's political pressures. So for example, you know, this area, this search and seizure area is one that will typically affect whether a criminal goes to jail, for example. Right. And no judge who is up for election or re-election wants to appear soft on crime, for example. So there are political pressures maybe at play, but you know, you're left to speculate in effect. And then what we have is we have any judge who has integrity on the Supreme Court, hopefully, that is going to turn this around. Um, the one case that you cited that I asked whether it was the thing that brought this to your attention was, I, th I think it was Arizona versus Gene. Is that right? Is that- the Oh yes, I remember the Gene. Where Clint Bollock, uh, he wrote a concurrence in effect, or was it, it was part it was dissenting, part concurrence. Okay. I, I got confused because there were a number of judges who were part in dissent and part right. in concurrence with the majority. Um, but he was in, in effect saying, why didn't the parties bring this up? Why Absolutely. didn't, you know, here we have a piece of language that is just patently completely different uh, than the federal constitution that on its face seems like it could offer broader protection for a defendant like in the Gene case and saying, sorry, you lose because you didn't bring this up. It echoes what Gorsuch did in Carpenter 
in his dissent, by the way, um, you know, where they're saying, bring up, bring up these things, bring up yeah. these good arguments that are available to you. Uh, but here's the question. Um, do you see that there is hope for construing this provision in a broader way to provide more protection yeah. now that we have the Mixton case, for example? <laughs> Yeah, so so I do think there's hope, and I think there's hope both in the short term and the long term. The the long term is it's because I think one of the reasons why lawyers haven't really made these arguments, and, and it's a shame, but it's it's the fact is that there just hasn't been the research on this. The there hasn't been the scholarship, there hasn't been the effort, and my article, but also a lot of research by other people, has been moving the ball forward in this regard. One one thing that comes to mind is the Iowa Supreme Court just about six months ago issued a really remarkable decision in a, in a warrantless search case. Now, Iowa's constitution is identical to the Fourth Amendment in this regard. Nevertheless, the Iowa Supreme Court absolutely refused to follow federal jurisprudence in interpreting that provision because they said federal courts have been falling down on the job and haven't been protecting people the way that they ought to. And we're not going to go along with it as a matter of state law. It was really a remarkable decision. So I think that shows a change in consciousness. But as far as the Mixton case, yes, what happened in that case is the Arizona Court of Appeals, this case is ongoing right now, mm -hmm. the Arizona Court of Appeals issued a decision saying that did interpret the Arizona Constitution separately from the federal Constitution when it comes to warrantless searches. And that's a really, that's a really good sign. That case is going to go to the Arizona Supreme Court and prevent, presents really the first genuine opportunity for the Arizona Supreme Court to really address this subject in depth. Okay, so I'm going to get a little more technical than you just did on the Mixton case because the Mixton case is right in my little narrow yeah. area of interest within privacy law. And what Mixton, the appeals court in Mixton held, is that in the state of Arizona, at least, there is no third party doctrine, which means that the mere fact that you share information with a third party, at least in the normal course of a business transaction, say with your internet service provider, that fact doesn't mean that you give up all expectation of privacy in it. Yep. So that might be seen as the court going beyond the Fourth Amendment, right? Um, and using the private affairs clause to an effect that's going to help Arizona residents at least have more protection for their privacy. But we could also see it as following along with what Gorsuch and Thomas are starting to hint at in Carpenter and their opinions in Carpenter. And maybe we're going to start either chipping away at the third party doctrine or perhaps get rid of all or most of it. That's sort of my hope. But so, you know, I don't know which of the two and I'm going to have to dig in more to see what they're doing. But it does hold promise, I think, for what you're hoping, which is that they'll actually take the language of the Constitution seriously and start interpreting it um, to have a broad meaning, which is justified. Is that Iowa one? Let me, now I've lost my, blocked my phone again. I'm a good privacy person. My phone locks. Um, is the Iowa one, the one that I pull, pulled that great language out and I put that you circulated earlier today. Yeah. I don't, I don't have my article in front of me either. Okay. So I love, I love, I love the language. So this is only six months ago in Iowa, right? Is Something that like that. Yeah. Okay. And, and the Mixton case that you talked about, let me say that, that you're, you're absolutely right. This third party doctrine, which says that the government doesn't need a warrant if it gets the information about you from some third party that you have voluntarily given that information to, that is a matter that the courts 
absolutely just have to re reconsider. I mean, in today's world, we so pervasively share information with third parties that we nevertheless expect it to remain private, that the, the existing law that says that that's just not covered by the warrant requirement just cannot, it, it's just not workable in today's world. All, everything that I do is shared with Google. I mean, everything. It's yeah. on my Gmail account contains every detail you could ever want to know about my life. That it cannot be the case that I no longer have a privacy right in that. Now, the difference here between a correct private affairs law and the Fourth Amendment is that because the Fourth Amendment is all about reasonableness, the Fourth Amendment cases have all focused on your expectations of privacy. And one of the big problems with that is it's very subjective. It changes over time. When you become aware that the government is surveilling you in some way or another, now you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that regard. And so now the next step is for the court to say, well, then your privacy rights weren't violated. And that creates a one-way ratchet effect where every time the government expands its surveilling of you, now you no longer have a privacy right, which, which that's just question begging. Whereas the Washington courts, and I hope someday the Arizona courts, have mm -hmm. said, no, no, we're going to take an objective look at this. What do you traditionally, what do people expect as a privacy right? What is it that our law has protected? And what do people have an objectively reasonable right to, to, to keep private without a, and that the government can't intrude on without a warrant? That's a much preferable route for us to take. Yeah. So, I mean, at least uh, the way that I understand from your article, the provision is construed. The first prong of the test, so to speak, ba is based more on tradition on, you know, in, in effect, what the tradition is with respect to privacy and certain right. type, types of information, right? Right. Um, whereas the first prong of the federal test has become hopelessly subjective. Yeah. You know, do you have an actual expectation? And I have people who all the time say, what, you're trying to fight for privacy? Privacy is a lost cause, go away. Nobody has any privacy anymore. No. And so of course th these people don't expect any privacy. Um, what I like about your provision though as well is it focuses in the second prong more on whether the intrusion into that area that is traditionally private, right? According to the- right your conception, the intrusion has to be authorized by law. So instead of saying, well, it's an expectation that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable, which is just hopelessly pragmatic. And there's just no, there it's, is there something in the law that authorizes the particular right. intrusion, which I like, and it, it's going to lead me to another question in a second, but let me, um, I just want to read because I'm just a geek. The, language from the Iowa court. So remember the Iowa court, according to uh, Timothy here, he says that, that this is a provision in their constitution, which is identical to the federal constitution, right? They have a, a you know piece of language that is identical to the fourth amendment protecting against unreasonable searches and seizures. But nonetheless, the Iowa court said this quote, we do not allow the words of our Iowa constitution to be, quote, balloons to be blown up or deflated every time and precisely in accord with the interpretation of the U.S. Supreme Court following some tortuous trail, end quote, is, is great because that, you know, when, what, what is the expectation that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable? That is ridiculous on its face. Um, I don't know, have I tried out on you 
my solution to the third party doctrine problem? I don't think so, no. Okay, so I'm gonna try it on you here. Uh, what I think is that we should get rid of it entirely and we should recognize its good root because the third party doctrine arose in the era of the secret agent cases. That was when it first came about. And so the rationale was that if you're in the midst of a criminal conspiracy and you share information with somebody who either turns informant or is a secret agent, whatever, and then that person shares it with the government, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. And there's no search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment if that person turns it over. So it's, you know, Tony Soprano and he's with his henchmen in the basement and they've got the washing machine on because they don't want the little bug to hear them and everything. And he's sharing all the details about the hit that they're going to do or whatever. None of that is protected by any sort of arrangement that they make. The guy can go around and turn and share it with the government, turn informant, and there's no search. That's the rationale, right? Third party doctrine. Right. He shared it, gone. But if you notice, that's in a criminal context, okay? And what the Supreme Court did, the federal Supreme Court did in the late 60s, early 70s, is just port that whole doctrine over into the non-criminal context without any justification at all. The only thing that you could get is that in the banking cases, they say, oh, well, this is an area of law that's heavily regulated or, you know, an uh, activity that's heavily regulated the banking industry that's all nothing no justification for saying okay it all arose in the criminal context and it goes to the non-criminal my suspicion is that the reason that you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy that nobody thinks you do in the original cases those secret agent cases is because what was involved there is an illegal contract between the parties right so if we look at the common law of contract they had some oral contract that they were making for a hit or whatever. And part of the contract was that they were going to keep everything secret as between them. But that contract is not enforceable at common law because it's an illegal contract. The predominant purpose of what they're doing is completely criminal, totally unenforceable. So if that person goes and shares with the government, there's no breach of contract. Nothing has been broken that's legally cognizable. But if I go to the bank and I share information with them, if I share information with the phone company, if I share information with Google, with Facebook, this is all part of a predominantly legal contract, even though some people might use it for nefarious purposes, right. your underlying predominant purpose test would be that this is a legal contract. And so my contention is that government should have to obtain a warrant to induce a breach of that contract to get the party to turn information over to you. Somehow the light has changed for you. Zoom, yes. Zoom, Zoom <laughs> decided you needed different lighting or something else. I forgot I have motion sensitive lighting in my office, which has been a, a horrible experience. Zoom is, Zoom is picking up the ball and letting us still <laughs> see you. So don't worry about that. Um, but yeah, look, you look kind of in a green zone. So you, you see what I mean, right? So yes. then the, the one context it arose in that it seemed very sensible was in that context of illegal contract right yeah so no i think that's a i think that's a, a nicely objective approach it avoids the subjective aspects of, a, of our whether you expected it to remain private and so forth 
No, no. And, and that's the thing. I mean, you have a legitimate expectation of all of your perfectly legal contracts to be upheld, including those privacy provisions, right. implicit, explicit, whatever they are. So that is my solution. It's been written up years ago in the St. John's Law Review. And this is the one that I want to get before the court, say, in a case like Nixton, right? Sure. Amicus brief, et cetera. So that, that's where I want to go with it. But um, you know, again, it remains to be seen, at least in my mind, what, what's your sense of whether the court is, uh, you know, in Mixton, getting rid of the third party doctrine as part of recognizing a broader interpretation in general for your private affairs clause, or if it's part of the general trend, which was started in Carpenter of, you know, at the federal level, Carpenter is a federal case, chipping away at the third party doctrine anyway, and maybe Arizona is just trying to push along and be part of that. Well, I think, you know, as I mentioned, this is a case that's going to, to be a petition to the Arizona Supreme Court shortly. And un unfortunately, I think the answer is going, is going to end up being the latter. In this case itself, the majority, of, it's, a, it's an unusual case in that you have a three-judge panel, and then you have two basically dissenting opinions. Mm. Uh, and the reason why is one judge says, well, uh, you know, I, I disagree with this one aspect of the case. The other judge says, well, I disagree with this other aspect of the case. And in particular, one of the dissents says, you know, this case doesn't even mention Carpenter. So I think what's going to happen is that when it goes to the Arizona Supreme Court, I would not at all surprise me if the easy way to resolve the case is to say, well, Carpenter resolves this case, blah, blah, blah. And there you go. And then maybe that gets uh, goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then that's the, the next case after Carpenter. That's And then it turns into a Fourth Amendment case. And then we're left with nothing, once again, when it comes to the Arizona's, uh, Arizona's own constitution. So I think the answer is it's probably going to end up that way. And that's that kind of blends into the, the latter part of my article where I talk about why it is that that courts, state courts tend to just use federal law. And one reason is just because it's easier. You know, we go to law school and we're taught federal cases and we're taught the federal constitution. And, you know, you can take classes on your state constitution, but those are voluntary classes. And, mm -hmm. and hardly ever do, the, do we talk about state constitutions in law school. And then when you go into practice, it's easy to just make those federal arguments. And then these, these state constitutional provisions just get ignored. It's a real shame. Well, so if, for instance, we had proper federal level protection for privacy. Should we want our state constitutions to provide more protection than that? I mean, what is your view, for example, on something that came up in one of the opinions that you cite, but it seems not to have been mentioned again, because you, you cite one opinion in Arizona where one judge wrote at least that privacy is a right, a distinct right. Yeah. For me, I actually don't believe that it's a distinct right and yet I could see that maybe you might constrain governments at a state level differently than you would constrain governments at a federal level when the actions of those governments would affect the interest that is privacy. Yeah, so this is, that's two questions that are both pretty complicated when you get into it. The first thing about, about privacy, in the article, I, I try to, to, to sort of hint at what I think is uh, the next step in this argument, which is I think privacy is different from private affairs. I think privacy is intimacy rights. And that was a thing that really came to the fore in the 1970s. And it also is the famous tort of invasion of privacy that was fashioned in the 1890s by, by Brandeis. And, and this this is a, a very complicated and touchy subject. And fortunately, I didn't have to resolve it in my article, so I didn't. But right. you know, after 
the Washington Constitution was written, and before the Arizona Constitution, Constitution was written, this famous article on the right to privacy gets published in the Harvard Law Review that creates this idea of a right to privacy distinct from the rights to rights to property and the rights against trespass and things like that. And what Brandeis was and Warren were trying to do in that article, article was to formulate a new concept of privacy that was separate from private property rights and other kinds of things, precisely because Brandeis didn't like property rights. And so exactly, no, exactly. And, and in fact, he said that it's privacy that's the fundamental and that property is actually derivative right. of. Right, right. And so and so they're trying to formulate really an invalid concept of privacy. And, and the research on whether the Arizona Constitution's private affairs clause protects that kind of, kind of privacy, there, there's been little writing on this, but most of it says yes. And I think the answer is maybe, probably not, actually. Um, mm. If it had been, then you would expect there to be more discussion of that, and there just wasn't that. And all the discussion was about stuff about searching through people's um, business affairs, not through you know photographing them against their will, which is what Brandeis is talking about, things like that. But it, that gets so technical that I didn't think it was necessary to talk about too much in depth in the article. Right. So I didn't really talk about that. But the, this, this broader question about whether state constitutions should be more protective in this regard, I think the answer is not only yes, but it, it inevitably has to be yes. And the reason is that the federal constitution is for a government that's primarily concerned with international relations, national commerce. It's not supposed to get into the nitty gritty of daily government. It's a short constitution precisely because the federal government is not supposed to be doing the main business of governing. That's supposed to be done at the state level. And that's why state constitutions are longer, much more detailed, have stronger protections, are easier to amend, and all those sorts of things. They are States are primarily responsible for police work and therefore, the protections of the of the warrant requirement should be stronger and more detailed at the state level. Well, OK, OK. So let me make the inverse argument, right, which is that federal government with respect to policing should be doing less. And so federal government should be more constrained with respect to searches and seizures than the state government, because the state government is the one that's supposed to be taking on the brunt of the policing. Yeah, I agree. But I think that's taken care of by a healthy appreciation for the limited powers of the federal government. You don't have to put that in the Fourth Amendment because you put that in Article One, Section One, that says that the Congress only has those powers that are specifically in the Constitution. If now, of course, it that way, yes. that's right. The problem is that we've broken that down so much that people just okay. naturally assume that Washington, D.C. should be, you know, tucking us into bed at night. And so naturally enough, we have a problem because the Fourth Amendment protections are not up to that task. Well, really, the right solution is to get back to the correct understanding of federal power. And then the lesser protections of the Fourth Amendment make more sense that way. Also, keep in mind that when we talk about privacy rights, a lot of the time we're talking actually about liberty rights protected by the 14th Amendment and that don't really belong in the Fourth Amendment. And, and that may seem like an abstruse distinction, but uh, one of my favorite, one of, the, of course I say that as if there's a lot, there's not very many Arizona cases on this issue or for that matter on any issue. Arizona is a very young state, mm -hmm. um, but there's a, a, an Arizona case that says the right to refuse medication if you don't want to take medicine, you have that right. And that right is protected by the private affairs clause of the state constitution. Now, at the federal level, about five years after that, the U.S. Supreme Court said, hey, you have a right not to take medicine if you don't want to. And that's protected by the liberty, protected by the 14th Amendment. 
Obviously, that would not go in the Fourth Amendment's rights against searches and seizures, right? So there's an example of how these two provisions often overlap, but they often are completely different. Right. No, definitely. You know, when you talk about the issue of privacy being about sort of intimacy, and I, I would put all of those things under liberty more properly. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Okay. Okay. Um, but in, you th in the correct world, if the world made sense, but as they say, okay. if the world made sense, men would ride side saddle. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's that. Uh, I had not heard that one before. So. <laughs> You know, us Arizonans were into our horse metaphors. Excellent. You know, I was at a Blondie concert the other night and she said, you know, she's here in Southern California and she's saying, I thought there'd be more people on horses here. She obviously thought she was going to be in Arizona, but she's from New York. So for New Yorkers, it's, you know, California, Arizona, it's all same difference, but no, you know, you know, maybe better. a Norco. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, now I'm going to have, have lost my train of thought completely. <laughs> Excellent. Well, my, no, my work here is done. <laughs> let me ask you about the other case that we had mentioned briefly, but I don't know anything about. I think you said it's called O'Neill or is it McNeil? I forget which. Yes, O'Neill. And that's okay, a case okay. that's currently pending in the Arizona, well, it's going to be appealed to the Arizona Court of Appeals. And this is a case um, where the it's it's actually really rather striking facts. So the cops pull a guy over for traffic infractions. It turns out he's driving without a valid license. So they take his car, impound his car. Now, when you impound a car, the cops are allowed to search the car for what they call an inventory search. And the inventory search is supposed to be like what's in the car and put it on a list so that the cops don't get wrongly accused of stealing stuff while the, ca while the car is sitting there in the impound yard, you know. Well, it turns out when you do that, sometimes you find evidence of a crime. And so the court has said that this, this inventory exception to the Fourth Amendment under federal law, you can get a lot of evidence in that way. But what about under state law? What happened to this case is they impounded the guy's car, they opened the trunk of the car, they found a backpack in there, they opened the backpack, and inside they found a notebook, and then they opened the notebook and they read what was in the notebook, and they want to use that evidence, which was incriminating, against the guy at trial. And the trial judge said, no, that's not valid under the Arizona Constitution that exceeds the inventory uh, authority. Now, what's interesting in this case is there are Washington state cases, uh, uh, precedents that address this issue specifically. And they say, this is not allowed. So what I would like to argue to the Arizona courts is that when this case goes on appeal, I'd like to say courts, you should follow the Washington lead. It's the same private affairs clause. It's the one that the, that the Arizona Constitution was based on. And you should follow Washington state precedents and say, no, cops cannot read a person's diary that they find in a backpack in the locked trunk of a car that they're doing an inventory search on. That inventory searches are not supposed to be for investigation. They're supposed to be just for preventing theft or loss. Okay, so, and that would be very good if we could get that there. That's gonna help, of course, you in Arizona, and it's gonna help reinforce the people in Washington, but what's left for the rest of us poor slobs all over the rest of the country? We should try to put some sort of a ballot initiative together or however it is that we amend our constitutions and try yeah. to get our own private affairs clause. Is that gonna help us? I, I think it would be a, a great idea as long as you made it clear when you did so that you were meant to follow the Washington model and not the Arizona model. But yes, uh, and I think it's gotta happen because um, you know in the 1970s, there were I think seven states that adopted 
the word privacy or some version of that into their state constitutions. And that's like New Jersey and Alaska and a lot California, of other states. I think too. Yeah, California, that's right. And that, and the California provision spe specifically says the right of privacy as opposed to private affairs in the Washington constitution. I think that language really is significantly different um, because again, what California was concerned in the 1970s with things like intimacy rights and abortion rights, in addition to probably right, the, the kind of traditional uh, rights in the home and things that we're, that we're concerned about. But in any case, that happened as a result of fears that the federal courts were backing away from protections for those rights. And I think with Carpenter and other cases, what you're seeing now is people are really starting to notice that the age of the smartphone, the age of Gmail is presenting challenges that the federal courts, at least, are not really up to or they're, they're catching up, but not fast enough. And I think it would be very wise for Americans throughout the country to adopt provisions into their state constitutions designed to address that concern. Yes, definitely. You know, what I like about that recent sort of thread of jurisprudence at the federal level, and it's, it was really started by Scalia, okay? So Scalia is the one who said, well, we've had this reasonable test forever. Why don't we start going back towards a more property-based or at least recognize some of the explicit property-based areas that are enumerated in the Fourth Amendment, yeah. right? Your persons, houses, papers, and effects. No, it's great. Great. It's a great step. It is a great step. And so what it starts to get you thinking is that we should be protected in our privacy vis-a-vis -vis government, at least in those areas, but maybe also in additional areas where you couldn't, for example, say that the government was trespassing or the way that I like to put it with respect to our contract with Google, for example, is that they're doing some tortious interference with contract, right? Yep. Um, I, I most of the time I would like to reduce the wrong that the government is committing here to some sort of tort that it's committing and go back to it. Do you remember, did you uh, ever read Akilah Mars? Absolutely. Fourth Amendment first principles. And he talked about how your recourse used to be trespass. That's right. That was your recourse. Now, of course, exclusionary rule. So, you know, to me, exclusionary rule is perfectly matched with the reasonable expectation of privacy test. Both are just these woozy things. Whereas when you look at the trespass remedy for a violation of the Fourth Amendment, and when you actually try to look at, you know, if there's other sorts of tortious wrongs that you could identify the government is committing, that makes it very concrete what it's doing. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's been always my focus is at first I identify myself with the reductionists who say when there's a privacy interest that's violated, you could always reduce it to some sort of breach of contract or some sort of tort that's committed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and let me let me put in a, a second plug here for that Akilah Mar book for, for any non-lawyers who might have stuck with us this far. And that is uh, his book, Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, really gets into this in in a, a very easy to understand way. It's not just for lawyers and it's it's beautifully written. There's a lot of stuff that I disagree with Amar about, but his books on the Constitution are just masterpieces. Yeah. And years and years ago, when I was a research assistant for Leonard Peikoff, we interviewed Professor Amar for the show and I got to mark up Fourth Amendment first principles. And yeah, so the, I've been a fan for a very long time and this got, we probably got my thinking started on all this, but here's the question, right? So clearly the government should be constrained from acting even if 
you, you know, in certain cases, even if you couldn't identify a particular tort that it's committed or a particular tort for which there'd be some sort of a remedy that a court could even grant. Right. right? Um, but how would you describe those cases? Would you say, okay, the court or excuse me, the government has taken an unauthorized action that affects somebody's privacy interests, something like that. Would that be a way to yeah, I can see that. These cases? I think that might be easier to do in the federal context than in the state context because the, the provision, first of all, if it was federal agents, they have limited authority because of the limited powers of the federal government. Secondly, I think that the, 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 the reasonableness provision of the Fourth Amendment might actually work in your favor in that regard. You might, I can foresee the argument that, that you know, this, this vagueness about what's reasonable should tie should go to the runner you know it should be that the the federal government should be constrained from taking unreasonable action as opposed to whether my expectation of privacy is reasonable or not my expectation of privacy should probably be presumptively reasonable unless there's good reason to think otherwise but um you know the whole reason why we have relatively easy to amend state constitutions and state statutes is so that if there are unforeseen situations where what the government's doing is intolerable to us, but it does not, for whatever reason, uh, cross the line of pre-existing tort law or pre-existing property law, then we can pro provide a provision. Now, a good example comes to mind is um, uh, Arizona has a statute that applies to subpoenas that are issued to members of the media. If the, if the court issues a subpoena to a member of the media to demand information about a confidential source, for example, then there's a special procedure that the court has to go through. It has to give a special hearing within a certain amount of time and that sort of thing. Now, you know, I don't know, I have never sat down and thought about whether I think that's a good idea or not, but there's an example of where there was a perceived need to provide a stronger protection, although it didn't really necessarily intrude on existing law, so they, they wrote a new statute. So I think that's an area where, an example of, of what we should be focusing on, which is our state constitutions were, were written to provide stronger protections precisely because of these unforeseen circumstances. And historically speaking, I mean, you're talking about the Fourth Amendment written in the 1790s compared to the Arizona Constitution written in the 1910s when there was a century or more of historical experience with government doing bad things. And yes. so there's more specific provisions in there to protect us. Yes. And that's why I think the private affairs provision is so beautiful because private affairs, and as you explain in the article, clearly connotes people's business affairs. Right. And there was already experience with government deciding that it would go ahead and regulate business affairs and then decide, well, that because the business affairs were regulated, they should just have to, you know, have their books open. All businesses should just be able to have government examine all their books and everything and just walk in without a warrant. And Arizona, you know, take a little chip and go go back at this. Now, you remember, Arizona's founders were progressives. They were they were turn of the century progressive populist mm -hmm. types. And so on one hand, they had a certain really individualistic strain. But on the other hand, they were really into regulating the evil, greedy corporations. Mm -hmm. And so they created the, the Arizona Corporation Commission, which was a, a special agency charged with overseeing corporations. And there was a proposal at the Constitutional Convention of 1910 to give the Corporation Commission the power to look into the private accounts and the, the, uh, the books of any corporation in the state. 
And they, there was a debate about this and, and the, they said, no, we, this is, that's way too intrusive because everybody's business would be a public matter. Yes. So instead they redrafted that provision to say, no, no, the Corporation Commission can look at the books of publicly traded corporations, but not private businesses. And then there was a separate provision that said banks have to open up their books, but then it, they said, notwithstanding the rights listed in the Bill of Rights. And they said that on paper. And that sh that's very important because that shows that they understood that the private affairs clause would otherwise have forbidden the government from mm. looking at the books of a bank. Okay. And so naturally enough, that means that my private business affairs, since I'm not a bank, must be protected by the private affairs clause. Right. Except for that now it seems not to be at all because right. it's been <laughs> overridden by federal law. So how do you see this going forward? I mean, I guess it's an area that's so much in flux because now post Snowden, people understand how ubiquitous, you know, we share ubiquitously our information yeah. all the time. And so if every time we share a piece of information, boom, it's out of our control and government can just grab it without a warrant at all time. We are in what I called last week, hotel panopticon, right? Um, Government grabs all of this without a warrant. They stick it in some huge, massive database, and then it's in effect watching you 24 hours a day, seven yeah. days a week. Um, people are realizing the threat of this. And so I guess there's a lot of different ways this could go, depending on what sort of precedent is set in states like Arizona. I think that's true, but I think it's also going to be a pretty slow in the courtroom anyway. If, if legislatures go ahead and, and bite the bullet and, and do something about this, that'd be great. But if, you're, if we're looking to the courts, you know, courts are very slow. The law is a very slow process. There's a reason why they sell ties at the U.S. Supreme Court gift shop that have little pictures of turtles on them, um, because it's a symbol of how slow the courts are. So I would not expect this to be a fast process. It's going to begin with the courts, at least in Arizona, even recognizing that the state constitution means something different than the federal constitution. I mean, that, that should be basic, and yet it still hasn't happened. So it's going to take, it's going to be baby steps, I think, at least as far as the courts are concerned. In a way that is good, because what we're dealing with is constitutional sure. doctrine. You know, yes, legislators can get things done quickly and often they'll pass things without even reading them, which is just mind boggling to me. Uh, but what happens is, is that whatever they pass, they can take away next term when you have different right. people. And of course, they'll never do that with something like Obamacare, which is this entrenched takeover of the healthcare system in our country. Uh, but when it's something like privacy, where, you know, the latest president who knows what his view is of privacy. I don't think our current president is so keen on it. Um, a lot of our politicians want to mandate encryption backdoors and all sorts of stuff like that. Right. Right? So, but that we are at the mercy of the whim of the legislators if we are going to count on legislation. And I really think the only durable way to get protection for privacy is through the courts. But for me, like I said, the, the question that I'm thinking of now is, you know, yes, privacy is based in these interests of property and contract. That's how we, I think, as private individuals will protect a state of privacy for ourselves. We use our property in our homes. Um, we trade with other people to make contracts to, you know, rent IP access that's supposed to be private and not tapped into and, and things like this, right? So it's all through those 
just common law interests of, of property and contract. And yet maybe we demand more of government that it just not commit torts against our common law interests. And how do we characterize that? How do we hold them accountable? These, this is, you know, the questions that I'm asking. Oh yeah. And you know, there's, there's even how just you saying that brings to mind a particularly nasty decision from, I think it was the 11th circuit court of appeals mm -hmm. where the court said that economic transactions are inherently public no matter what. And so this was a case where it was, I believe it was the ACLU sued to challenge the constitutionality of laws that exist in some States still unbelievably to prohibit the sale of sex toys. And, oh, wow. <laughs> and the, the question was, does that fall within the federal constitution's protections for sexual privacy? And the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals said no, because all economic transactions, purchases and sales are inherently public matters. Well, that just wow. cannot be true. When I go to see a doctor, that's an economic transaction, but I sure as hell expect that to be private. So I, it cannot be the case that economic transactions are public, but that is at least what, what some courts have said. Well, and so this is why we go back, you know, I have my catchphrase, legalized privacy. Yeah. Legalizedprivacy.org is me, but it's because privacy right now in our country is basically illegal, particularly in the 11th circuit from what you're telling me. If you cannot make a contract to protect your privacy, then today privacy is essentially illegal. Why? Because we don't just keep our private stuff in the confines of our homes or even in our cars, which, you know, depending on where you are, have dubious protection themselves. They are in our phones, some, right? They are often because of they're in our devices, they go to the cloud and do all these things, right? A lot of our very private things are all over the place and it, they're subject to contract. It is a contract between us and the service provider that is protecting our privacy in that thing. And you're just telling me the 11th Circuit said, hey, let's just forget it entirely. You have no privacy at all, yep. 1984. Yep. So that's what I think I wanna fight for. If, you know, I think you have a better shot at it at the state level in Arizona because of the private affairs clause, if you can succeed like you're going to. And I might try to join in uh, you know, on these privacy cases and say, hey, let's see if we can at least get this established in one state of our union. That would be wonderful to say private affairs are private. And yes, this includes your ability as an individual to make a private contract, unless the government has evidence that you are up to no good, that you're making an illegal contract. And that the question of whether something or another or other, whether the privacy in that thing should be legal, legally protected is not a subjective inquiry into what people think, but an objective analysis based on the circumstances, the facts of the situation and considerations that aren't just about what people believe uh, at, the, at the time. And that, that's really, I think, the key to fixing a lot of these problems. And, and that's why Washington State really should be celebrated for really taking the lead. They've done a remarkably good job of protecting people and particularly by refusing to create new exceptions to the warrant requirement, not, not carving new holes in it the way that federal courts have. Yes. Now, does Washington state hold that there is a distinct right to privacy or they just objectively enforce that private affairs clause? They do both. The, okay. I, it's, you know, the privacy rights as we have come to think of them in, in things that you, as you rightly said, really should fall under the liberty protections, mm -hmm. the right to, to intimacy and so forth. Those rights are protected under the state constitution. But when it comes to the private affairs clause, really the, I think the biggest thing that the that Washington courts have, have done a good job of is 
is by either refusing to create new exceptions or, I mean, even things like, like, you know, the traffic stops to sniff your breath, you know, that cops yeah. set up, that's illegal in Washington state. So those, though, refusing to create new exceptions or reconceptualizing the exceptions that exist in a rational way. So for example, um, there's this exception called the good faith exception. If a, if a police officer thought that what he was doing was legal, then even if it turns out it was illegal, then the evidence he got can still come in. That's the ra that's a good faith exception. And what the uh, Washington courts have said is there is a good faith exception, but it only applies in the circumstances where the cops are enforcing a law that is later deemed to be unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't apply where the warrant was invalid, but the police officer didn't know it. Because in those kinds of circumstances, then you're getting into too, too subjective a terrain about what people believed instead of what the actual facts were. And honestly, think, you know, it's only fair that the state should have to follow the law. And if what the state did turns out to have been unlawful, then it can't just wash its hands of it by saying, oh, well, we thought it was lawful. That's not good enough for the state. This, you know, there's an old saying that, that the citizen should cut square corners when dealing with the state. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Yes, yes. I mean, they're supposed to be protecting us. They're supposed to be working for us. But I do see what you mean that because the state is doing more, there's going to be more explicit provisions about this in the state constitutions than in the federal. That makes sense, or at least that's how it should be. We have our federal government doing too much policing these days. Right. Uh, FTC versus Facebook is the kind of stuff that I've got on my radar as well, mm. but that's that's not on yours. So I want you, sir, to plug anything you've got. Um, I know you've got a book that is coming out and that is something that I want to interview you on on a later date if you're gonna let me. And uh, no, I'd love to. It's, it's, it's a book that has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with, with privacy rights, uh, search and seizure, or the law in general. Um, it's a biography of uh, Jacob Bernofsky, a, a scientist and philosopher I admire a lot, who's best remembered today for his 1973 television miniseries, The Ascent of Man, which was a 13-hour documentary series on the history of science. And mm -hmm. I just thought he was a fascinating person. He was involved with or knew people who were involved with everything interesting that happened in the 20th century. And so I decided to write a biography of him because nobody else had. And uh, it just came out a few days ago. So. Just a few days ago. Okay. So I have to get on it. I'm yeah. behind already. I'm yeah, sitting distracted by all of this privacy stuff. And then in terms of your work at the Goldwater Institute, are you still focusing a lot on the children of Indian descent, supposedly. Yeah, we talked about this in a podcast. Uh, what was it? A year, two years ago now? Two the, years ago, probably. Yeah, yeah involved. It's the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a federal law that sets race-based prohibitions and mandates on foster care, adoption, and child protective services if the child is genetically uh, qualified as a member of an Indian tribe, uh, even if that per that child is not actually a tribal member. And these law, this law makes it more difficult for state officials to protect these kids against abuse and neglect and virtually impossible for them to uh, find adoptive homes when they need them. And the, the, uh, the federal district court in Texas declared this law unconstitutional about a year ago. And that case is now on appeal in the Fifth Circuit. And we're waiting for a decision right now. And I think that it's inevitable that that case is going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. Right. So there is hope for the poor children who are stuck with this. Just to give the listeners an idea, what percentage of blood 
that is of Indian descent would qualify a child to be supposedly a member of a tribe such that they would lose the protection that most kids have of being put in an appropriate home, a home that's good for them? Yeah, that, that depends on the tribe, and uh, it depends on whether the tribe has a minimum blood quantum or not. So, for example, if you're um, the Navajo tribe requires 25% Navajo blood in order to be a member of the tribe. Uh, the Gila River Indian community, which has a large reservation south of Phoenix, it says you have to have 25% Indian blood, regardless of tribe. And then some tribes, including the Choctaw and the Cherokee, have no minimum blood quantum. They just require that you prove that you're genetically descended from a person who signed the 1906 Dawes Rolls, uh, which was an Indian census. So in that case, you, it's a, a, a one drop rule, as they used to say. Literally a single drop of Indian blood would be sufficient to qualify you as an Indian child under the Indian Child Welfare Act. And then this whole separate set of federal rules applies that, that basically makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to protect you against an abusive parent or to find you an adoptive home if you're in, in foster care and so forth. Yeah, so I really hope that you get justice there. But this uh, privacy area is something that's become recently of interest to you. And so you're gonna pursue a few cases and we might bump heads yeah, a little bit more about this. Okay, that's great. Well, I thank you very much for your time, sir. Sure. Thank and you for having me on. You go fight the good fight and we'll talk again. All right, thank you. Okay, take care. I'm going to go ahead and look over on YouTube. No, I don't have questions over here. So I don't know if we got, we lost the lawyers or whatever, uh, or lost everybody, but the lawyers that could happen because we kind of geeked out a bit, but I thank you for geeking out with me. My pleasure. Bye-bye.